Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. Today, I'm joined by Colin Bryce. Colin is a founding partner of Energex, a natural resources and energy consultancy, and the former co-global head of commodities for Morgan Stanley, as well as being chair of Morgan Stanley's International Bank. Colin's joining us for two episodes to talk about commodities trading. Firstly, what is a trading business? How should they be structured and organized? And what are some of the challenges and pitfalls in creating one? In part two, we move on to traders themselves. What are the attributes and behaviors that makes a good trader? And what are the external factors around a trader that can lead to success? And we talk on career paths and career choices that can affect traders' success. Colin, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. And thank you for that very kind introduction. Appreciate it. I guess you've been involved in building, running, trading businesses across commodities for, for much of your career. And Energex itself is very much focused on working with producers around the world, building or looking at um, optimizing their trading platforms. I wanted to start with quite a simple question. What actually is a, a trading business? Because I think there's quite a few misconceptions out there. There's quite a few myths. What is a trading business? Yeah, well, I, um, I mean, I've spent 40 years of my career, I guess, about half of it being a trader and the other half managing, leading, um, you know, trading entities. So I've kind of seen it from 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 both sides. But, um, you know, the simplest questions like the, <laughs> the one you've just asked me are always the hardest to uh, to answer. So let's uh, let's have a go and think about it from um, first uh, first principle. So trading is definitely a contested word. Um, you know, it's an emotive word as well, particularly when used by the uh, the press and the, and the media. Um, and it's a very misunderstood word, actually, both by um, folks in the general public, but also by professionals, uh, you know, folks in the uh, in the energy business and uh, in, in senior positions. And I can well remember uh, back in my early days when uh, I was a young trading assistant, the uh, upstream chaps in the company I was uh, working for talked of us as the folks who got rid of it, you know, as if we were only good for getting rid of the oil that these uh, wonderful scientists and people had managed to extract. And that was always the kind of um, sense, and it's clearly not uh, not the case that uh, underestimated, even in these days, um, the role of the, of the trader. So um, trading, well, and trading is buying and selling at the market interface, I think. Um, so you've got a spatial definition there, i.e. the market interface, a place where it uh, happens, and, and you've got a functional definition, buying and selling, perhaps you could add exchanging, uh, whatever, uh, to that. But um, that wouldn't really, I think, be quite sufficient, because I think you need a purpose as well, because trading takes place for a number of different purposes across a spectrum. And so at one end of the spectrum, you have what would be called hedging. So the management of risk inherent in a company's natural position, the risk manager role. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got what's known as speculation, which is kind of profiting from the risks inherent in the market, you know, the risk-taking side of things. However, the risk-takers, of course, are also folks who own the risk that they take and therefore manage the risk that they take. So actually, at both ends of the spectrum, you have risk managers, whether they're risk managers as hedgers or risk managers as um, speculators. Important that we differentiate speculation as well from gambling, 
you know, speculation, as we've talked about, is profiting from risks inherent in the market. And gambling, on the other hand, is where you create new risks to try to profit. So very, very different uh, circumstances. So maybe to, to kind of summarize what trading is and what trading businesses do, you would say that, um, you know, it's buying and, uh, and selling to manage risk at the market, uh, at the market interface. Just to be clear on that speculation side, um, I think it was a fascinating um, and one of the most succinct descriptions I've ever had on trading. Are there people in the com- in the commodities markets who also gamble, or do you define everyone as a speculator? Oh no, there are clearly people who gamble. I mean, I think uh, you know the the concept of outguessing the market. Certainly, uh, you know, back in the day, was something which was pretty commonplace. Um, you know, people speculated without really uh, paying a great deal of attention to, uh, you know, um, assessing data and, you know, looking at to their competitive advantage or all the good things about uh, effective um, speculation. Um, but that sort of outguessing the market stuff doesn't work in the long run. And, you know, there are less and less folks now in the marketplace that have survived that do that and, you know, um, it's uh, it's not really present to, to, to the same extent as it once was, in my view, anyway. Yeah. So you you've got this, um, as you described, a spectrum of um, hedging through the speculation in terms of what the goal is of the traders themselves. Can you just, I guess, help us navigate what what can a trading business bring to an organize, you know, an, an oil producer, for example. What are the, I guess, different categories of value that it can can return to the to the business? You know, as I think as public information, you know, two stroke three billion dollars of uh, of revenue um, <laughs> to yep. the retailers and the BPs and uh, you know the banks in the past and the traffics, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, you know, it can bring a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, added value uh, to a business. But I think if we expand a bit, it kind of it all depends on the objectives, really, as to what it can do for a business. So if your objective's managing risk at that end of the spectrum, then you know you're helping to stabilize your earnings profile and you're, you're locking in uh, known returns, which helps you to access uh, funding, at, um, financing at attractive rates. Um, you're, uh, you're giving effect to your competitive advantage that you might have. And, and so you're you're engaging in prudent business management, um, and you know that that reduces the costs of doing business, and it uh, enables you to run your business in a in, in a more uh, effective uh, and stable manner. That's obviously very positive. If you're in the middle of the spectrum, which is where you have a com- combination, if you like, of managing inherent risks and taking advantage of you know opportunities in the market, given your natural position, maybe refineries or storage assets or contractual undertakings that you have, you know, then you're doing what's often called asset optimization, mining the optionality, if you like, in uh, in your position. It's the BP Vito traffic thing, and it used to be the thing that the banks did. It's where the money is um, these days and where folks are gravitating towards. And so, you know, that's um, clearly a, a highly profitable area for people who have the right um, uh, credentials, if you like, to... Uh, to operate difficult, but, you know, um, very rewarding. And then at the other end, at the, 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 the speculation end, 
that would be mainly by the hedge funds and the and the algos and people who are manipulating uh, the data that effectively um, perhaps have some size advantages. They need a competitive advantage of some sort at that end of the market, as you do everywhere, um, to be successful. But you know, these would be the, the the three sort of areas where you know the function and 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 the, the operational model can benefit uh, the trading business very significantly potentially. I guess we've heard a lot about um, energy transition and some of the, I guess, ongoing change in the marketplace. Is in simple terms, a trading business helps you, I guess, capture margin, but also navigate and perhaps even foresee some of those changes a bit earlier than than if you didn't have that kind of capability. Yes, I mean, you 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 see the market, and you have to be uh, in the market to see the market, and especially these days in fast markets. You know, you can no longer go out for lunch or close your book at five o'clock, as folks used to do, because, you know, the market um, moves and is open and you need a feel for it at all uh, at all times. And But, yeah, I mean, and, and as you talk to counterparts and you, uh, you feel trends that are taking place, then it helps you, you move your business from uh, perhaps one particular point in that spectrum gently to another point, just as I think in practice, a lot of businesses have gravitated to to the middle of that spectrum from a functional perspective, um, as they've seen that that is where the the revenue, um, uh, you know, best revenue possibilities have tended to, uh, to 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 lie most recently. So there have also been over the last twenty years a lot of different types of entities in in building and engaging in commodity trading platforms. You know, it started off, I guess. You had the the oil majors on the on the oil side, and some of the nascent trading houses. But you've had utilities in in gas and power, and then you had the uh, entrance of the banks. You know, building trading businesses alongside their their IB business. Uh, you've obviously had hedge funds. I guess how does the owning entity impact the goals of the trading business, and and on some of the constraints as well? You know, it used to be that the traders in the kind of loosest sense of the word were at the speculative uh, end of affairs and the oil companies at the at the hedging end um, and the corporates up that end as well and the banks and then laterally likes of BP, Vital, Traffic, Lencore, etc. In, 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 in the middle where the, where the money is. It all is a little bit of a question of, I think, the culture of the entity, the risk appetite of the entity the sort of knowledge and experience base of the executives within the entity, how core the business of trading is to the ent- is to the entity. All these things, you know, these objectives, competitive advantage related things, you know, vary and differ by, by entity type. And, you know, that d- determines really where they will be on the spectrum of, of opportunity, really. Yeah, there is certainly you know, some idiosyncrasies to the actual business itself as to where they kind of started off and ended up, right? Um, and you can see that just amongst the oil majors. Um, I guess key to that decision, whatever entity it is, you're, they are making a conscious decision where to place their business on that risk-reward spectrum, if you'd like. How have you seen leaders go about thinking about that and, and kind of what, what influences those types of decisions? So I think this is where, um, you know, in Energex, we've been able to help people and, and, and where I think it's money well spent for people because it's the most difficult piece. It's trying to put together, you know, the whole picture um, of, you know, what's the culture of this firm? What are the objectives 
um, that we're uh, aiming for in being in the marketplace? What's our competitive advantage in the market? You know, do management understand well um, how to uh, operate in markets and how to uh, manage uh, traders? Um, do you have the right good people in place, the right risk appetite? Do you have the control culture that you need in place? All these different um, you know, conditional uh, probabilities have to be uh, covered, really. And that's the difficult piece. That's the kind of, that's the art of getting the whole thing put together. And there are lots of failures, um, for sure. You know, you hear about the few hedge funds that do very well. You don't hear about the hundreds that fall by the wayside. And, you you know, um, similarly, um, you, uh, you uh, hear about, couple of individuals who have great track records and uh, presence and, uh, you know, are pumped up in the media, but you don't, again, hear about the scores of people that um, just don't uh, don't make it. And um, it's difficult and it, it requires a lot of intellect and um, and good sense and managing these conditional probabilities to, to make it work. Yeah, there's definitely confirmation bias out there, I think, in, as you hear the success stories. But also on the flip side, you know, we've been involved in being upstream of discussions around whether, from the, the talent perspective about, you know, how and should you build a, a, a trading business? You know, there's a lot of examples where it hasn't gone well. Um, you know, the results might have been great, but, you know, there's been regulatory issues or there's been, you know, um, it introduces naturally a lot of, of risk into the business as well. And I really think that's the, the crux of this discussion is you've got this, you know, it brings significant value to an organization almost this year at the existential level when you've seen the results of the trading businesses for these oil majors in a time of dramatic price reductions in their core product. But it does introduce risk. And I guess it's the objective of the people who build these businesses and the leaders in them to try and mitigate those. Can you guide us through what are the major, I guess, risks or issues where, where where things have gone awry can you sort of give us some categorizations in terms of where those those have fallen and and, and what businesses can do to mitigate it without obviously you know a bit of free consultancy <laughs> you know there are lots and lots and lots of things go wrong lots of conditional probabilities which actually i guess you know represent the barriers to entry um uh, to the business at the end of the day you you, you might um you might laugh, but I um I kind of compare it a little bit to breeding racehorses, which my wife and I do uh, on the on on the side. There are so many conditional probabilities between the time you you know get the the mare covered and you've uh, you you have a, a pregnancy and you hope that the foal survives that, and then you hope that it's birthed well and it's got straight legs, and it doesn't kill itself in the field before you send it to a trainer, and its ear passages are open and it's you know, fast and a whole host of different things can go wrong. So very few actually, you know, go from the point of conception to the point of being, uh, you know, excellent, um, excellent athletes. And it's exactly the same in the trading world. And what you do in the racehorse breeding world is you try to manage these conditional probabilities as best you can. You get a good vet, you send the horse to a good trainer, you uh, give it the best of care and attention as it's growing uh, up. You make sure your mares uh, very uh, good, um, well-pedigreed mayor, et cetera, et cetera. So if you apply that then to uh, the markets, the energy markets we're talking about, well, you've got the black swan stuff out there, possibly, you know, leptokurtosis, I think they call it, um, stuff that comes from left field, you know, beyond the bounds of human rationality. The hardest, uh, the hardest uh, 
bit to control. And actually, it's not as rare as, uh, <laughs> yeah, as you think. Apparently not. <laughs> I think it was was it maybe Henry Ford that said uh, um, uh, history is bunk or something. I think he said history is bunk. Well, it's not. It keeps repeating itself in, in this sense. And, you know, you keep getting these uh, random black swan left field kind of shocks. That's the least controllable piece, actually, of all the things that can go wrong. So what else? Well, systems. Very important. Uh, firms have to have systems to uh, monitor market risk, credit risk and monitor the uh, activities and behavior of people. Um, you need to have uh, effective limit structures in place, which uh, often uh, um, are not uh, adhered to. And, you know, you need to have um, management, again, understanding the business and uh, having it as a core business. You need to have the award structure, which rewards the right behavior, doesn't reward bad behavior. You need to have a culture where you don't have management by fear, which encourages people to put tickets in the drawer and hide trades for, you know, fear of being castigated by uh, or sacked by uh, some uh, um, disapproving um, uh, manager. You know, sorting these things out ex ante is what you have to do. There's no point in charging headlong into the business and then finding you're, you're going to face all these issues and trying to play to catch up and put your systems in place ex post because somebody's you know, hidden some tickets in the drawer and you're facing a massive loss, get all these things sorted ex ante. Um, that's the best, um, that's the best uh, protection and the best way to manage the conditional probabilities that were just uh, all too common and too difficult, actually, to work with. None of that's cheap, right? Um, particularly setting up the systems. It seems as well that you, you, there also needs to be an understanding and a buy-in and a trust at the you know, at the group level, at the 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 at the board level as well. Um, you know, because these can often be quite um, challenging to the existing organization's culture and setup. You know, I think about you mentioned compensation. You know, typically when you're building a trading business, that's one of the key sticking points when you have to introduce an entirely different reward system for a division of your business that can that brings with it a lot of challenges. Do you see that as well? You know, what, how important is kind of the, the broader organization's buy-in? Oh, it's, uh, it's terribly important and it's uh, extremely important that, um, you know, firms can, uh, can cross that line uh, understanding um, that a certain type of reward system is, uh, is needed for a certain type of uh, activity. You have to reward rainmakers. You certainly don't have to reward coat tailors, which has, you know, I think what that's been what's brought the whole bonus culture into uh, disrepute is that um, everybody has climbed onto the bandwagon and, uh, you know, uh, that's that's not right, um, actually. Um, but yeah, the, the, the firms, the big firms that have um, been able to get that bit right, been the ones that have prospered, none more so in my view anyway than BP over the years. And uh, I guess you could include uh, Shell and Total probably amongst the the biggies uh, in that category too, but um, you know these guys have managed to understand um, that this is a specific type of business with a specific need for specific reward structures, and have uh, honed and fine-tuned these uh, uh, over the years um, um, to encourage people to do what they need to do to make the company successful. Talking of those types of organisations, and I guess this is where that kind of transfer pricing comes in. There, there's, there's, there has always been a challenge to my mind, of organizations trying to understand what is, I guess, 
beta and what is alpha you know what is what's what what is the system itself the the asset value chain that an organization has that is generating trading returns versus the what the um the actual skill and capability the trader brings to that and how do you balance rewarding those two things um that's definitely been a dynamic over the years the organizations have kind of gone back and forth on can you talk to that a little bit Yes, well, the value of the seat is a terribly difficult and very important thing to uh, to understand. And, you know, um, if you have a little bit of history of a few different folks going through the seat, you perhaps start to be able to triangulate into what the value of the, the seat, the intrinsic value uh, is, if you like. But, um, you know, then determining, um, you know, what uh, of the rest is due to, company's credit position, the uh, company's profile in the market, the natural assets and positioning that they have and what's due to the, uh, the, uh, the real skills of the individual, um, uh, it's a very difficult thing, um, which is why certainly from my perspective, um, I believe that uh, reward systems should reward um, consistent performance uh, over time. I mean, I was never in favor at uh, places I worked when I was rewarding people of rewarding one-off big years because you just didn't really know whether that person had done it because they were lucky uh, or because they had <clears throat> benefited hugely from the specific assets and the natural position that their firm had in that particular uh, market setting or whether they were just brilliant. But you could tell over three or four or five years, you know, by the consistency of how they operated, whether they were you know, worthy of um, of uh, you know getting uh, getting better get better better paid because they were actually very very good. And actually, in my view, um, there are not many people out there, not many traders who are very 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 good. It's a high art, in my view. There's a fair amount of fooled by randomness, <laughs> to quote Nassim Taleb. Um, and and what's interesting about that is actually in the wake of the kind of unintended consequence of the global financial crisis was many organizations, particularly banks, moved to um, uh, deferred compensation models with clawbacks. And that actually itself then rolled into some of the, the oil majors and so forth. And I think that did have a, a cooling effect and, an, and a, um, an impact on kind of the velocity of traders moving around. Um, and you know, obviously, because the good ones will get got more and more locked in each year, um, but also, you know, did put a bigger lens on consistent performance. And I think you did find quite a number of individuals, you know, you know, whose track records um, were looked at in the in the long view, as opposed to those one-off spectacular years, and were perhaps to you know, um, it was a bit of an eye opener. Yes, uh, there's no question about that, um, and. Uh... You know, it doesn't help when the uh, the media and publications pick up on, uh, you know, big stories of big profits that maybe someone has made and they glamorize an individual or they glamorize, uh, you know, an activity without really understanding what's what's behind it. It, it doesn't help. Um, you know, uh, prudent, conservative um, uh, management of, uh, of, of, of businesses. But yes, certainly, yeah. Um, some of these uh, things that have come to pass with uh, deferrals and uh, um, clawbacks and all of that kind of thing have uh, have moderated behaviour um, and are just part and parcel of the the reward system. You know, encouraging the right type of behaviour and not encouraging bad behaviour. Mm. Well, if I if I look at the 
the sort of the most successful organizations over the long term, um, you know, you've mentioned a few of them. Um, most of them, in fact, all of them have some kind of, you know, um, enterprise value reward as well. Some kind of long-term incentive that, you know, that, um, you know, whether, you know, through equity or other means, you know, where actually you know, a significant portion of traders' bonuses are coming in the form of that um, equity or deferred compensation that I guess does um, uh, promote the right behaviors, um, you know, both of, over the long term, but also over actually, you know, building sustainable businesses. Well, the equity piece, I think, cuts both ways for me. I, uh, I'm not entirely convinced about that because you look back and I've just finished rereading the smartest guys in the room, you know, the uh, Enron book. Um, and uh, you, you, you can see the damaging effects of, uh, you know, folks um, uh, really focusing on just the one thing, i.e. the stock price because of the, uh, the equity they, uh, they had at any cost. Uh, from from that example, and so you know it can cut both ways, really. Um, you know, if, if you're going to be rewarding people with equity, which in theory is an excellent way of doing things, um, it has to be combined with uh, you know um, a high high degree of integrity and a strong moral compass, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, many of the things which arguably um, were not present in the, in that particular entity. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that we've seen as well over the long term is you had such rapid growth at some of these trading houses that there were periods when people's, you know, bonuses as a result of their equity, the dividends were, you know, bigger than their actual P&Ls. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> yes. it can it get out of whack that way yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Never yeah. happened to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Anyway, my P&L was never that, that big. So, you know, it wouldn't have done. So I guess we're in a, um, you know, energetics are busy. We're busy, you know. You've, you've. Um, we had Roland Rechsteiner on um, a few episodes ago talking about energy transition as a key driver for businesses to um, build trading businesses, or, or I guess reposition them on that risk reward um, spectrum we discussed. Um, and those are oil majors, mining businesses, you know, right across the the natural resource world. Um, we talked about some of the benefits that trading business brings. How is the opportunity changed? Because it's not been a stellar decade in the in the zeros. Um, there's you know a lot of headwinds, a lot of consolidation. How has the opportunity changed as you look forward for the next ten years? What 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 are we seeing there that means that perhaps you know um, strengthening your trading business is is the right way to go? Well, you know certainly at the inception of some of these markets, um, you could characterize. You know, um, these markets as markets and energy is immature, and you know that led to a certain type of opportunity. And clearly, over time, um, these markets have matured. People have become clued up, um, and you know it's more and more important, really, to be able to utilize technology, which has become available uh, over uh, the course of the, the period that, uh, that the trading business and energy has developed, and use technology um, to quicken the pace of your business to, um, you know, enable you to uh, more effectively uh, utilize um, data, um, you know, less human sales and marketing touch, if you like, um, and, and, and more science, although, 
we all know uh, we know all about following the science and ignoring the human touch um, from <laughs> recent events. More regulation, so uh, you know folks are bounded and monitored more closely than they than they were in the perhaps fast and loose early days. Um, so perhaps it's a less colourful milieu as well. But you know, underlying it all, you have the same things that you have to look to, which is competitive advantage, objectives of your business, you know, the corporate seriousness of purpose, the efficacy of your reward system, um, your controls, um, you know, the uh, getting the right people in place, you know, because all of these things uh, um, will apply and, and have not changed, um, uh, irrespective of whether you're dealing with physical cargoes of oil as you were in the um, 80s and 90s, 1980s, 1990s, primarily, or derivatives and futures and forwards as you were dealing with in the 1990s and, and subsequently, or you know, assets as people are more inclined to deal with you know, up to the present time, or indeed um, new markets, renewables and um, uh, uh, net zero carbon uh, pathway markets like LNG that uh, are coming into the uh, into the, the prime focus uh, these days. Yeah, so you've got, I guess, technology reducing costs. Certainly there's been a maturation of the markets. You know, there are fewer colorful characters, as, as you mentioned. I, I, I read your... Uh, articles on the, the history of oil trading with, with uh, great interest. Um, and there's also these new, I guess, new products as well. Uh, there's a couple of, it's, it's, it's fascinating as well. There's, there's obviously been a, you know, it's, commodities are a very global market, um, but arguably we're entering a period of perhaps more trade restrictions than, than previously. And, you know, I guess that only increases, well, two things. Firstly, that means organizations need to secure their value chains um but also i guess adds uncertainty as well um in in what were perhaps more um it was easier to to get rid of the stuff um to quote your early early bosses yeah so i i think uh you know there's a greater greater degree of sophistication in every respect you know i think um a greater seriousness of purpose about the whole activity and it's not a, it's not a bad thing you know it's become a becoming a you know, more inverted commas, respectable, um, you know, considered uh, kind of uh, kind of activity. Um, and uh, that, that's only a good thing, really. I think one of the major challenges looking at it from a talent perspective is that there has been considerable consolidation over, and over the last decade and, you know, less investment in new talent. Um, you've seen just smaller cohorts coming through the, the trader training programs at the oil majors, if any. Um, there are fewer organizations that have been growing, building, and developing traders, and there's, and there's been fewer trading houses themselves you know, through that consolidation. So one of the challenges is that there are fewer individuals out there at the junior and mid-level mid experience available to participate in building these trading businesses, and there's only so much that technology can, can overcome that. Yes, and working from home will not help that at all. You know, it's all very well creating a state or operating in a steady state working from home, but you uh, you lose all the, uh, the finesse of uh, you know the human contact, and you lose the ability to train people and uh, help them understand the uh, mores and rules and culture that your uh, business um, operates uh, with, and all these 
softer but terribly important things. You know, that's uh, that's all lost um, by home working. Um, and yes, the number of uh, folks, um, you know, uh, being trained in the business um, uh, are, are, are less than they, than they were because of the consolidation and uh, talent pool shrinks. Um, I mean, that's an area which you guys, of course, are specialists in, uh, and experts in. Um, and, you know, you can help um, the whole process, and I'm sure you do help the whole process by being able to, you know, say to a candidate, look, here's the type of company you should be looking at because this is how they operate and this is how they behave. And by the way, here's the sort of things that you need to think about uh, in terms of your own skills and your behavioral characteristics. Um, and, you know, you can help ensure that there's a smaller group of people who are graduating into the, the stream, um, at least at a high quality, well-prepared, you know, eyes wide open cohort. And I guess we, I want to come on to that in in our in our next episode with you, um, talking about you know what makes a a good trader, but also to use a colloquialism, you know, horses for courses as well. You know, individuals understanding you know the best environment for them. But um, well, it's been a, a really fascinating discussion. Thanks, Colin, very much for your your insight. You know, and look forward to continuing in part two. Thank you for listening to the HC Insider podcast. To find out more about HC, go to hcinsider.global, where there's more news and content focused on the commodities markets.